All right, today is going to be a review of what we've learned so far and just a reminder of um, why we're covering some things that m might appear at first glance a little bizarre. Uh, sometimes the Bible is a little hard to understand. Um, in fact, that might be an understatement. Um, just think about what it would be like for you in your morning reading if you opened up first to a selection out of Leviticus and then you went to a selection out of Psalms, and then a selection out of Jeremiah, and then a selection out of Matthew, a selection then out of Jude. If you're familiar with those works at all, you know how, how different those books are. And depending on where you're reading in those books, you might find yourself wondering, what in the world am I reading? And Dr. Heiser has helped us better understand what the Bible is by referring to it as a theological and literary mosaic. Have you ever seen a mosaic work of art or craftsmanship? It's, it's a picture or a pattern produced by the intentional and some might say skillful arrangement of smaller multicolored pieces of material, maybe glass or stone or tile or paper. The smaller pieces are very different from each other but they work together to form a single work of art. Our Bible is a theological and literary mosaic. Our creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, our traditions, like Baptist or Assembly of God, our theological systems, such as Arminianism or Calvinism, they all serve good purposes. They, they help summarize and organize important theological ideas that we need to work on and, and make clear, but they're not a substitute for the biblical text itself. And they should be submitted to the authority of inspired scripture, which we often forget was produced in a very different culture and different time. The biblical text was written and organized by men who lived in the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean between the second millennium BC and the first century AD. Our culture and worldview today, as diverse as it is in America, is distinctly different from the culture and worldview of the ancient Near East at the time the biblical text was written and organized. Dr. Heiser wants us to understand our Bible as a theological and literary mosaic. All the parts are important. Leviticus, Jeremiah, Matthew, Jude, all the parts are important and essential in forming the pattern of the mosaic that the authors and the Holy Spirit intended for us to understand. I can say we've learned at least four things about God in this study so far. Number one, God is relational. That is, God created heavenly and earthly beings in his image. Here's what we've seen. First of all, God has a heavenly family. As we've seen in Psalm 82, the Elohim, or the God of Israel, Yahweh, presides over a divine council of other Elohim, other lowercase g gods, that is, spiritual beings, um, referred to also as the sons of God or heavenly beings. If any of this sounds strange today, just please go back to those previous episodes where we've worked through this. In Job 38, verses 4 through 8, we've seen that these sons of God were present when God created the earth and humans. And in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9, we've seen that God assigned these Elohim, these sons of God, these heavenly beings, to different nations. That doesn't mean that God gave these Elohim to the nations for the nations to worship. But just as God would task humans with subduing the earth, 
the Lord tasked his divine counsel with stewardship over the nations. But Yahweh took for himself the nation of Israel, according to Deuteronomy 32, verse 9. So that's God's heavenly family made in his image, assigned to stewardship over the nations. But we've seen that not only does God have a heavenly family that is bearing his image, but he has an earthly family that is also bearing his image. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we've seen that God created humans in his image. In Job 38, verse 7, We've been reminded that the heavenly beings who are also created in God's image looked on as God created humans in his image. In Genesis 1:26, this passage further confirms that both of God's families, his family in heaven and his family on earth, share in that imaging status. It's important for us to understand this imaging status of those in heaven and on earth because it's tied to God's cosmic plan. If you ask any ancient person from the ancient Near East, where do the gods meet? Where do the Elohim meet, the divine council? They would answer in luxurious gardens or on the top of high mountains. We've seen that in previous episodes. And it's why the biblical authors want us to see the Garden of Eden as a luxurious garden mountain. In Genesis 2.8, we've seen that the Garden of Eden is not like the rest of the earth. In Ezekiel 28.13, we see the Garden of Eden as the Garden of God. In Genesis 2, verse 10, we see a river is flowing out of Eden, revealing that Eden is elevated like a mountain. When reading the Genesis account of the Garden of Eden, ancient Israelites would have thought of Eden as the dwelling place of God and the place from which God and his counsel would direct the affairs of humanity. And there, in the divine council, is the presence of humans in the Garden of Eden. The theological message, as we've seen, and I'd encourage you to go back and review that again if you haven't so far, the theological message is that the God of Israel created this place, the Garden of Eden, because he desires to dwell among his family. He intends to rule in heaven and on earth, and he intends both families to function together. Dr. Heiser says the story of the Bible is about God's will for and the rule of the realms he has created, visible and invisible. Through the imagers, he has created human and non-human. This divine agenda, Dr. Heiser says, is played out in both realms in deliberate tandem. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, heaven and earth are separate but connected realms, we see that God's plan is for his heavenly and his earthly families to work together towards a mutual destiny. Don't you see it? We get a glimpse of what God's plan is for humanity in those first few chapters, to care for the Garden of Eden, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, subduing it, ruling over all its creatures. And in the Garden of Eden, we see the Garden of Eden does not need to be subdued. God cultivated it. It's perfect. Adam was commanded to work and to keep it, but God planted it. The rest of the earth is what needed subduing. It was good. It was habitable, but it wasn't what Eden was, and it needed to be subdued. God's plan was for the whole world to be like Eden, God's dwelling place where his heavenly and earthly family work together. The divine mandate of heaven to earthlings was to make all the earth like Eden. 
This is the theme that we can't miss because Eden is where the idea of the kingdom of God begins. The Garden of Eden and the kingdom of God, both images should cause us to think of two things. Number one, God's residence, right? The Garden of Eden, the kingdom of God, number one, God's residence, that is his divine dwelling place. And number two, God's headquarters, or as Dr. Heiser calls it, the nerve center for God's plan on earth. Dr. Heiser says, with Eden, the divine had come to earth and the earth would be brought into conformity. Humans were created to enjoy everlasting access to God's presence, working side by side with God's loyal Elohim. While these heavenly and earthly beings share in bearing God's image, they do not belong in the same category as Yahweh as we've seen. This brings us to the second thing that we've learned about God so far. Number two, God is exalted. That is, God, Elohim, Yahweh, is creator and judge of his image bearers. In Psalm 82, we find that Yahweh is among the Elohim, but he is superior to all other Elohim. The biblical authors ascribe attributes to Yahweh that they do not ascribe to any other Elohim in the spiritual realm. Yahweh is all-powerful, according to Jeremiah 32, 17. He's the creator of the members of his divine council. He is the only Elohim deserving of worship from other Elohim, Nehemiah 9, 6. Psalm 95, 3 says, For Yahweh is a great God and great king above all gods. And we've been reminded that he is ultimately the judge of those created in his image because there has been a rebellion in heaven and on earth. We'll start with his heavenly family. God's heavenly family has rebelled. Isaiah 46.10 says that God knows the end from the beginning. So God was well aware of the risk of rebellion when he created beings in his image, that is, with genuine free will. Now, having free will is one of the ways that image bearers represent God. Heavenly and earthly image bearers are not robots who follow simple programming or instinct. They are free beings, just as God is a free being. Attributes that we share with our creator, such as intelligence or creativity or free will, these are the means of imaging God on earth. In Job 4, 17 and 19, uh, chapter 15, verses 14 through 15, we've seen that there's been a rebellion in heaven. God's image bearers in heaven have used their God-given free will to rebel against God. In fact, in Genesis 3, verse 5, the serpent tries to persuade Eve to use her free will to disobey God and to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, tempting Eve to think that if she eats the fruit, she will become like one of the heavenly beings in knowing good and evil. In Psalm 8, 3 through 6, we see that while there's a vast difference between humans and God, there's not a vast difference between heavenly beings and earthly beings. Earthly beings are said to be created a little lower than the heavenly beings, but then crowned with glory and honor and commanded to have dominion over the earth, God having put all things under his feet. But unfortunately, there's been a rebellion, not just among his heavenly family, but also among his earthly family. Humans buy into the lie that they can become like the heavenly beings, and they rebel against God. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are then banished, exiled from the Garden of Eden, 
sin and suffering become a daily part of our human existence along with death. And so whether in heaven or on earth, Scripture shows us that God will judge his image bearers. Psalm 82 verse 1 informs us that God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. In verse 2, God asked these Elohim, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? In verse 3, Yahweh instructs them, give, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. And just again, consider our current social, political, governmental context today. Be mindful of the fact that behind what we do see, there is a spiritual realm that, that directly affects us. A reminder that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual entities that we do not see um, over the nations. The Lord in Psalm 82 demands in verse 3 that they give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. In verse 5, we read that they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. In other words, the earth is messed up and and some of that is related to the unjust rule of these Elohim. In verse 6, the Lord says, I said, you are gods, that is Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. And here's the warning. Here's the judgment that we see in contrast that God is speaking to non-humans. He says in verse 7, nevertheless, like men, you shall die. You'll fall like any prince or ruler. And listen to the last verse of this psalm. In verse 8, arise, O God, judge the earth. And listen to this, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, this brings us to the third thing that we've learned about God so far. Number three, God is sovereign. And God is sovereignly accomplishing his will through his image bearers today. And here's how God intends his image bearers to carry out his decrees. This is why God is bringing judgment against some of his divine counsel in Psalm 82, because they're not carrying out his righteous decrees. This is why God exiles his image bearers from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, because they violate his righteous decree. It's also why he expects humans to multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, because that was his initial decree. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we understand what it means to be his image bearers. God issues his decrees and his kingdom citizens, whether in heaven or on earth, those who bear his image are called to carry out his decrees. Of course, he could do everything himself. We've discussed that in previous episodes. God doesn't need anyone to do anything for him. But he has chosen to partner with and to work with others, both his heavenly family and his earthly family, in order to accomplish his will. Some examples we've seen are like Isaiah 6, 1 Kings 22, and Daniel 4. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah finds himself in one of Yahweh's divine council meetings. He notices the Lord on his throne he sees spiritual beings. He hears the Lord asking his counsel, who will I send? Who will go for us? And I, Isaiah interjects, send me, I'll go. 
In Isaiah 6, we see the king, he's involved in his divine counsel, he decrees, and Isaiah volunteers to be the one who carries out his decree. In 1 Kings 22, the prophet Micaiah finds himself in one of Yahweh's divine counsel meetings as well. He sees the Lord on his throne. So in Isaiah 6, in 1 Kings 22, in each of these visions, the Lord is seen on his throne. And in 1 Kings 22, Micaiah also sees the host of heaven beside the Lord, beside Yahweh, and he hears the Lord ask. He's talking to his divine counsel, and he asks, who will entice Ahab? And a spirit, Micaiah sees, he volunteers, the spirit says, I'll go. And the spirit even has an idea about how he might go about enticing Ahab. Again, we see the king, the Lord Yahweh, involves his divine counsel, he decrees, and the heavenly being volunteers. In Daniel 4, a divine council member uh, in this passage known listed as a watcher announces that Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose his mind. We hear that it's by decree of the watchers, another term used for the sons of God. We hear this decision is by the holy ones, again, members of God's divine council, and it's decreed for this reason, listen to this, that the people may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. And so we see here that the sons of God decree, and it reveals that actually the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. Again, in these passages, we simply see the king is sovereign. The king reigns, but he involves his divine counsel in carrying out his decrees. And now we've, we've seen that Yahweh, he's in a different category altogether. He, he knows the end from the beginning. As we've seen, God foreknows all events, but he does not predestine all events. God is a free being. He's not a robot. As we've discussed, he has created heavenly and earthly beings with a genuine free will, just like himself. Dr. Heiser says that God knew the risk of Eden, but he deemed the existence of humankind preferable to our eternal absence. We've seen that God's foreknowledge and predestination are both related and not related. Foreknowledge is knowing what will happen. Predestination is determining what will happen. In 1 Samuel 23, we've seen that the Lord foresaw events that never actually occurred. We remember that the Lord saw Saul travel to Keilah, and then he saw David given up by the people of Keilah, and neither one of those things happened because David left, yet the Lord foresaw them. And passages like this show us that foreknowledge of something does not necessarily mean that God has predestined it to happen. God foreknows possibilities, but foreknowing all possibilities does not mean that the Lord predestines them to happen. Dr. Heiser says that since foreknowledge doesn't require predestination, foreknown events that happen may or may not have been predestined. Dr. Heiser says God may foreknow an event and predestine that event, but such predestination does not necessarily include decisions that lead up to that event. In 1 Kings 22 and Daniel 4, we've seen God clearly decree something, but then he leaves the means of how that decree will be carried out up to the decisions of his free will image bearers. This is important because it helps us understand God's sovereignty in working with his free will image bearers. God is not the source of sin. He is not the source of suffering. He is not the source of death. Sin, suffering, death are all 
a part of our existence today because heavenly and earthly beings created in the image of God use their free will to oppose God and his kingdom and his decrees. That brings us to the fourth and to the final thing that we've learned about God so far. Number four, God is redemptive. God is reconciling heaven and earth through one image bearer. Not only did God know that there would be rebellion, but Dr. Heiser says that God also foreknew a solution to the fall that he himself would guarantee. And as scripture has testified to this fact, God has the power, the wisdom, and the love to work within evil and suffering to bring about his good will, which is to bring order and life to that which has been corrupted by sin and death. Now, that happens on the grand cosmic scale. We know the trajectory of Scripture and where everything is headed, but it also works out in our daily life. The last verse of Psalm 82 says this, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, how will Yahweh inherit all the nations? Well, through a special and unique son, we've already established God has heavenly sons and earthly sons, but there is one son who, like Yahweh among the Elohim, is of a completely different class. The word often translated only begotten, like in John 1.14, is in the Greek monogenes. We've, we've looked at that in detail. It's a combination of two Greek words, monos meaning only, genao meaning class or kind, the phrase literally means one of a kind, unique. There are other sons of God, but there is a unique or one of a kind son of God who exists in a different category entirely. We made this distinction in Hebrews 11 verse 17, where Isaac is called Abraham's monogamous. Isaac is not Abraham's only son, but Isaac was Abraham's unique or one-of-a-kind son. He was the promised son of the covenant, a son of Abraham in a whole other category. And just as Yahweh is of a different class than all other Elohim, he is the creator of other Elohim, the divine council, the heavenly host, deserving of worship, so too Jesus is the unique and one-of-a-kind son of God among other sons of God. He is the eternal son of God who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who is worthy of worship from those in heaven and on earth. Just as Philippians chapter 2 says, just as Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 through 10 read, Revelation 7, 9 and 10 says this, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, what we've seen so far in this study that our, is that our Bible is a theological and literary mosaic. God is relational. God created heavenly and earthly beings in his image. God has a heavenly family. He has an earthly family. God is exalted. He is the creator and judge of his image bearers. And God's heavenly family has rebelled. And God's earthly family has rebelled. And God will judge his image bearers. And we've also seen that God is sovereign. God is sovereignly accomplishing his will through his image bearers today. 
God intends his image bearers to carry out his decrees. He holds them accountable to that. He involves them in bringing about his will on earth, both his heavenly family and his earthly family. God foreknows all events, sure he does, but he does not predestine all events. And God is redemptive. God is reconciling heaven and earth through one image bearer. Jesus will inherit all nations. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Thank you.